This is also a seam of Masechta Baba Kama. Part of this week's parsha talks about Hashem telling Moshe Rabbeinu to carve two new tablets of stone, two new luchas, to bring them up to heaven, and Hashem will inscribe the Ten Commandments on the second set of luchas as well. So it says in the Pasuk, carve for yourself two tablets of stone. So the Gemara learns from this that carve for yourself teaches us that Moshe Rabbeinu was told by Hashem that he was permitted to keep the shavings, the chips of stone that resulted from the carving of the shape of the two luchas. And the Gemara says that he became wealthy from that because the, the stones were precious stone and the remainder belonged to him. So he had this source of wealth. So on the question of when a workman does work for an owner, what happens to the remnants? Who is permitted to keep the remnants? Does he have to return it to the owner or not? So at the end of Masechta Babakama, the Mishnah says, it discusses a whole bunch of different scenarios. Uh, for instance, if, uh, if when there is a launderer and pieces of uh, thread or lint material that comes off the uh, garments when you wash them. So the... Um, the Mishnah says it belongs to the launderer, to the one, to the laundry person. And, but however, when you comb wool, at which time there is a, a large amount of remaining wool that comes off as you comb it, that belongs to the owner. The reason being, the difference being, that if it's just a small, insignificant amount that the owner doesn't really care about, so then the, the workman can keep it. If it's a larger amount, which already becomes significant to the owner, then it belongs to the owner. And the Mishnah discusses different scenarios uh, when somebody is trimming trees or somebody is um, chopping wood, not trimming trees, chopping wood, if there's large chips or small chips or just sawdust. So it makes a difference if it's significant or not. The, then, it, uh, then the Gemara quotes a Brisa that says, those who are carving stones there is no theft involved, meaning to say that the, the, uh, the workman is allowed to keep the, uh, the shavings from the stone. So the Rebbe Maharash quotes, uh, when he may once uh, wrote a siyam on the Sechta Babakama, quotes this b'raisa about the ones that, uh, tri- that uh, carve stones that they're permitted to keep the, uh, the remaining pieces. And he asks, if so, why was it necessary for Hashem to be able to have to give Moshe Rabbeinu permission to keep the shavings of the stone from the luchas if that's the, the, that is the law? Why did he need special permission for that? And he answers, because that was precious stone. And, by precious, and, and in the Mishnah, the, the Braise, it only says ordinary stone. By ordinary stone, it's understood that it belongs to the workman. But by precious stone, you would think that it, then it doesn't belong, obviously the owner would want that back, therefore he needed permission from Hashem to keep it. So it would seem that this answer of the Rebbe Marash actually depends on a machlekes, which is found also in regards to the luchas. There's a machlekes, where, where did Moshe Rabbeinu get the stone from which to carve the luchas? According to one opinion, he got it from Tachas Kisei which means from under the... the the throne of glory of Hashem, meaning it was a heavenly stone. 
According to another opinion, Hashem created a, uh, a quarry under the tent of Moshe. That's where he got the stones and he carved them down here and he brought them up with him. In fact, the uh, psukim seemed to lead in that direction. It says that I, the order that Moshe Rabbeinu himself says it is, I carved two stones and I brought them up with me to the mountain and Hashem inscribed them. So it seems that he, from the simple psukim, it seems that it was down here. Now, since... The, it says also in that Gemara in Masech Babakam, it says that if the uh, workman is working on in the area in the uh, domain of the owner, so then it belongs to the owner. If he's working in his own domain, then it depends whether it's significant or not. So over here, if Moshe Rabbeinu was working up there in the heavens, so then that's the domain of Hashem, and over there it would belong to Hashem, and therefore. He would, uh, he would need spe- special permission in order to be able to keep it. But if he was working down here on earth, which is not the domain of Hashem, the heaven is domain of Hashem, down here is not, therefore you could say that over there it would be a question if it's significant. And in fact, the, uh, the Rajbats at that time when the Rebbe Marash talked about this, one of the Chassidim, the elder Chassidim Rajbats said, but to Hashem all of this is meaningless, the whole, it's not uh, significant to him, so why would he care if Moshe Rabbeinu kept it, why would he need special permission and the Rabbi Marash answered because he was doing it down here, not up there and therefore down here, it's not considered to be doing it in the domain of the owner, and that's why it was not considered to be doing it in the domain of the, of the owner Hashem, and that's why he was permitted to keep it why, how does he know that he was doing it Lamata down here? Because the, the stones, for, as, as they are in the heavens above, have no waste. There is no waste from heavenly stones. And therefore, since there was waste, it means that he was doing it down here. But the question should be obvious that since the whole world belongs to Hashem, everything is in His presence. So what does it mean that if He did it down here, it's not in the, in the domain of Hashem? It is in the domain of Hashem. Everything is the domain of Hashem. And so since it's domain of Hashem, then he would need permission from Hashem. And so therefore, you don't really need the answer that it was precious stone, and that's why he needed permission from Hashem. Because even if it was ordinary stone, he would have needed permission from Hashem, since it's Hashem's domain. And especially in light of the fact that we say that everything that Hashem created in this world, he did it for a reason, which means that everything in the world is significant to Hashem. So you can't even call it to be insignificant. So even if it's ordinary stone, it should have needed special permission from Hashem for Moshe Rabbeinu to be able to keep it, not only because it's precious stone. So why does the Rebbe Marash answer that that's the answer? So to understand this, we have to first point out a difference between the way the Brisa teaches these laws and the way that the Sefta teaches these laws. In the Brisa, it divides it into two separate categories. The ones who carve stones there is no theft, which means they are allowed to, the, uh, the workman is allowed to keep it. Then it goes on to give a whole list of different types of workers, like people that trim trees from the dry twigs, or, uh, or vineyards doing the same thing, they, they um, weed in gardens or vegetables and so on. In those cases, the Brisa says, if the owner cares about it, then it belongs to the owner. If the owner doesn't care, care about it, it's insignificant, then it belongs to the workman. So it divides the, uh, the, the stone carvers from all the other workers. 
Whereas when you learn it in the Tosefta, he makes the whole thing into one category. The stone carvers and the tree trimmers and all that, all of them have the same category, which is if the owner cares, then it belongs to the owner. If he doesn't care, then it belongs to the workman. So it would seem that there is a dispute between the Tosefta and the Debraisa about the about whether the stone carvers are in the same category as the tree trimmers or not. In other words, whether the stone, the, the uh, pieces of stone that fall away, do they have intrinsic value that we then have to check with the owner to see if he cares about it, or, as the Breitzer says, it has absolutely no uh, intrinsic value. It's assumed that the owner doesn't care about it because it's just insignificant. Or in, to say it in other words, but the stones, according to the Brice, are so insignificant that the stone itself, the, the chefze, the object of the stone chips, are so insignificant, so valueless, that there is no point in even checking with the owner, with the gavra, to see if he cares about it. But according to the Tesefta, where he puts it all together, so the tree trimmings and all the other categories are the same as the, as the stone carvers, and therefore it's not about the stone being so insignificant that there's no reason to check. You do have to check. You have to check with the gavra, with the person to whom it belongs, to see if he considers it to be insignificant. And if he doesn't, then he can keep it. But if he does, then he, does, then he can't keep it, the uh, workman. So the question is, why would, the, why would there be a dispute about this in between the Bryce and the Tesefta? What's the basis of that dispute? And perhaps it could be explained like this. The Tesefta is something that was taught, uh, taught Tesefta, he would quote it, it was taught, learned in front of Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, and Rabbi affirmed every Tesefta. These were the extensions of the Mishnah, the, one, the uh, laws that did not get into the Mishnah itself, or the, re- the reason that Rebbe did not want to include them, but they were still taught by Rebbe to Rabchia. In fact, the Gemara says that if Rebbe didn't teach it, how would Rabchia know? In other words, they came directly from Rebbe. The Brises, the word Brisa means those that were taught on the outside. In other words, these were not laws that were taught in front of Rebbe, in front of Yehuda Nasi. They were taught on the outside in other yeshivas, and so they were included in the grouping called Brises. What does that mean? It means Rebbe lived in Eretz Yisrael, so the Tesefta was taught in Eretz Yisrael. Brises were taught most likely, for the most part, in Bavel, because that had become already the center, the the center of Torah had become already in Bavel at that time. In Yisrael, there was a lot of... Um, the, the, the Romans were then per- persecuting the Jewish people and they were not able to have yeshivas in the way they were accustomed to. So many of the yeshivas moved over to Bavel and most likely the Brises were taught in Bavel. Therefore, we know that Bavel was a place that is a low-lying land. Rashi tells us by the, the building of the Tower of Bavel that's related in Parsha Noyach that they made bricks. The Torah describes it as they made bricks and they, burnt, they, uh, they baked them in ovens. And Rashi says, why didn't they build with stone? And the answer is because it was a low-lying uh, area. There were no mountains, which means there were no stones there was no stone, they didn't build with stone there, they had to make their own bricks. 
in Eretz Yisrael. To the contrary, there are mountains, and the Torah says says one of the blessings of Eretz Yisrael is that uh, that the stone of Eretz Yisrael is like iron, very strong stone. That is a place which features stones as being good building material. Therefore, in the in the Brisa, where it talks about Bavel, where people were not accustomed to building with stone, so therefore it was insignificant. Nobody knew. What do you do with small chips of stone if you're the only one that has it? It's not like everybody has them and they figured out something to do with it. There's nothing to do with it. So it became intrinsically valueless. That's why the Brisa says that the carvers of stone are permitted to take the, uh, the chips because there is no use for it at all. In Eretz Yisrael, where they commonly built with stone, and they would carve stone regularly. So therefore they figured out things to do with the chips, with the shavings of the stone, and therefore over there, it's not intrinsically valueless. You have to see, does the owner in this case care or he doesn't care? That's the basis of the machloikas between the Brisa and the Tesefta on this matter. So based on this, we can also explain the question that the Rebbe Marash asks in that, in that Rishima. Because in the desert, where the stones of the where the stones of the tablets of the luchas were being carved, it was also a place where there is no stone available. Even though it does mention by the Makashish Eitzim that when they when he was caught, uh, found to be collecting wood on Shabbos, being Machal Shabbos, Hashem commanded that he should be stoned. Which means that there were some stones available, but it's certainly not a place where it's common to have stone, and they certainly wouldn't build anything with stone in the desert because they were constantly on the move. They had to, you know, fold up everything and move on so they wouldn't be building with stone. And therefore, over there, the chips of stone were considered to be insignificant, of no value at all. So therefore, the Rebbe Marash asks the question, why did Moshe Rabbeinu need special permission to be able to keep the, the chips of stone since... There is no value for stone, similar to what we find in the uh, Brisa, where it has absolutely no value. And therefore, the answer has to be given, because these were precious stone, and the precious stone does need to have special permission in order to be able to keep them. Another point that the Rebbe makes about why Moshe Rabbeinu needed to be told that he's allowed to keep the remaining pieces of the stone is because the luchas were something that was going into the aron. it was part of the mishkan and we know that all the materials in the mishkan had to belong to the tzibur they had to belong to the community as a whole they weren't in the personal possessions of anyone they had to be donated in such a way that it belonged to everyone so the luchas, the stones from which Moshe Rabbeinu was carving the luchas also had to belong to the tzibur so since all of this belonged to the tzibur, to the community as a whole, the question is, is Moshe Rabbeinu permitted to take any of it? And even though you might say that even as precious stones, but since there were about two million Jews at the time, and everybody has a share in it, so if you divide the, uh, the, the chips amount amongst two million people, does it really come out that everybody has a Shabbat Pruta, at least some significant amount of value that is left over in the chips and the remainder of the stones perhaps not it probably didn't but certainly we would know even though it's it, you can't be for stealing if it's not worth a Shabbat Pruta but it's prohibited 
absolutely prohibited minatayra to steal even something that is less than a shava pruta, and since it belonged to the community as a whole, Moshe Rabbeinu had to be told that he's permitted to keep it and to because it was the property of the tzibur. That's another way of looking at it. To understand the inner dimension of what the difference that there is, seems to be a difference between the luchas themselves that they belong to the tzibur, yet the carvings, the chips that fell from them were able to belong to, belong to Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, there are two different types of ownership that attaches to the luchas. To understand that from the inner dimension, the Gemara says that just like the, the uh, chips of the stone belong to Moshe Rabbeinu, we learned from the Pasuk Psalacha, the ksaiv, uh, the writing on the Torah, also belonged to Moshe Rabbeinu, says the Gemara, and explains that what this means is that Moshe Rabbeinu was given a gift by Hashem for him personally, that he was given the idea of pilpul of Torah, which means to be, to be able to uh, derive one concept from the other, and the give and take of Torah, the questions and the answers, all of these things were given to Moshe Rabbeinu as a gift. And he, in his great generosity, shared it with the Jewish people. But just like he got the remaining from the, the remainder of the stone from the luchas, he also got the remainder, the pulpula of the rice that belonged to him personally. So we see from this that there are two sides to the luchas the second luchas. On the one hand, the first luchas, everything was given, everything is the Torah as it is understood above, <coughs> in the heavens above, and it, it's a much higher level of Torah. But on the other hand, the second luchas came down here, they were a result of the Yidin having done tshuva, and so therefore they were given into our domain, into our world, which has two sides to it. On the one hand, it's very much concealed in comparison to the, to the first uh, luchas. On the other hand, it came along with the gift of Pulpula Deiraisa to be, to be able to get to a deeper understanding of Torah even more than the first luchas, which were given in a direct way, but without the ability to be able to delve deeply into it. So it has two sides to it, concealment on the one hand and reaching a deeper level on the other hand. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu was given this as a personal gift to him, he had the generosity to share this deep level of Torah with every single Yid, that every Yid is able to reach into the depth of Torah, to be able to reach to the essence of Torah.